Now, if you are perceptive, you'll notice a change in accent. Reminded, listen to our brethren, with other lips and other tongues will I speak unto this people. So, uh, you're getting a New Jersey accent, or I can even make it more New Jersey if you want. But nevertheless, very, very privileged to hear and enjoy the ministry of our brethren that has preceded. I'm going to ask you to turn for the final few moments to Philippians and chapter number 1. Paul's letter to the Philippians and chapter number 1. And we'll commence at verse number 3. Philippians 1, verse number 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment or discernment, that ye may approve things that are excellent that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Now we trust that God will add his blessing, along perhaps with some other things we'll mention from this very same epistle. It may seem like ancient history, but 1971, 1972... As an alternative to military service, I was sent to work in a maximum security prison here in the state of New Jersey, in, the, in Trenton. One of those experiences that you would not trade for anything in the world, but you would never want to do again. I think anybody who has been through anything like that will know what I mean. Invaluable, and yet something you really don't ever want to have to think of again. Men in prison, one thing was on their mind, only one, freedom. How can I get out of prison? We had jailhouse lawyers spending every spare moment poring over legal books, seeking to find some loophole, some way in which their case could be overturned, and appeal after appeal would go in to government officials and the moment an appeal was denied, they would begin working on their next appeal. Because freedom, liberty, was really what was foremost in their minds, and that's all they were concerned with. Themselves, their welfare, their freedom. What would you think of in prison? Who would you think of in prison? We have read one of Paul's prison prayers. From a hired house where he was under house arrest, Acts 28, God in his wondrous wisdom overturned all of the evil of Satan and all of the effects, all of the efforts of the Jewish leaders to confine him and to limit his usefulness. From that situation, we have been blessed with four wonderful epistles that 
are part of our New Testament canon. You all know them. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Interesting that in each of those there is a different emphasis, isn't there? When you're in Colossians, it's the preeminence of the head. When you come to Ephesians, it's the perfection and unity of the body. When you're here in Philippians, it's the pattern of the local. And when you're looking at Philemon, it is the practical life of an individual. So we move from the head, body, local, individual. Paul is giving teaching in those four epistles that embraces our entire Christian experience and embraces it with tremendous insight and tremendous instruction and tremendous help for us as, as believers. In each of those epistles, now I know not in Philemon, although his desires are expressed in Philemon, in each of those he is seen praying. Ephesians has two prayers of Paul, chapter 1, chapter 3. Colossians has that wonderful prayer of chapter 1, that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will, relative to the purposes he has for his son in a coming day. And here in Philippians, we have read together from verses 9 to verse number 11, his prayer for the believers here in Philippi. Each of those prayers would stress a, a slightly different emphasis. When you're looking at Ephesians, it's that they might appreciate their blessings. The eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we might know. And of course, all in that chapter one, he is bringing before us the, the tremendous blessings in which we have been brought. And he lifts his heart to God in prayer that the believers might be able to appreciate their, their blessings that they have in Christ. When you're in Colossians, it's not so much the appreciation of the blessings, but it's now there it is, the appropriation of the, of the bounty. All that Christ is tells us in chapter 2 that we are beyond substitutes, beyond shortages, beyond shadows. All of that is a thing of the past, and we have everything in Christ. And he says, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and he speaks of being built up, grounded, built up, established in him, and so on, and we have everything we need, the bounty of Christian life, appropriated because of all that Christ is and all the fullness of his person. Philemon, of course, his desire is the application of divine truth to Philemon's behavior, that he will show and display something of the character of God, that the forgiving spirit that marked God would be reflected now in Philemon and his treatment of his slave Onesimus. But here in Philippians, it's not now the appreciation of blessing, although it is there. It's not now the appropriation of bounty that will help me to live for God. It's not now the application of divine truth to my behavior. But I'm going to suggest to you it's the aspiration. An aspiration for better things. Better things. If you know anything of business thinking, if you know anything of uh, growth in business and how businesses seek to advance their, their place in the marketplace, you all know, of course, the expression often used, that the good is the enemy of the best. Good as the enemy of the best. Just good enough, and not going in for the very best. Paul here, in his, as he lifts his heart to God for these believers, he is longing that they may be able to discern things that really matter. To be able to approve, to put value on things that are, that, that are really important. 
So let me just quickly, if I can, go through what we have here in, in this psalm. We could speak together with great profit of the circumstances under which he prayed. Here he is in a hired house, chained to, to soldiers 24 hours a day, and yet we find him bowing his knees. For this cause, bow my knees unto the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Imagine, chained to soldiers. And Paul just bows his knees in front of two soldiers and lifts his heart to God for, for other believers. The circumstances. Think of as well of the uh, consistency of his prayer life. He speaks, I cease not to pray for you. Now in every prayer of mine, making requests for you in prayer. A man marked by consistency. Someone has paraphrased uh, Winston Churchill's famous statement relative to the RAF and the uh, rescue or the preservation of London and the preservation of the UK due to the RAF. And someone has paraphrased it and said, never have so many left so much to so few when it comes to prayer. Seems to be just a few that take up this tremendous ministry of prayer. Paul was marked by consistency in his prayer life. We can think as well something of the conflict he knew in prayer. He speaks of having great conflict in Colossians, doesn't he? For, for you and for those in Laodicea, all who have not seen my face in the flesh. He speaks here in the Philippians, how greatly I long after you. There was reality. He wasn't just getting up and saying prayers. Now, it's bad to speak about yourself, except when you divulge some of your own weaknesses. Sometimes I think I could tape record my, my prayers. And instead of necessarily praying, just put the tape on. I think sometimes I just go through long lists of names and needs and same thing every... Paul was marked by a fervor, by a reality as he prayed. A man who knew conflict against all the forces of evil, and he bowed his knee and, and he prayed. But come with me to the content of his prayer here in Philippians chapter 2, and you'll notice, first of all, that the warmth of his prayer. He gives thanksgivings for them. He joys in them. He, he appreciates them. This is no mechanical, this is no robotic praying for a list of names. Here's a man filled with a tremendous sense of the value of other believers. And as he lifts his heart to God in prayer, he thinks of how valuable these saints are. Do you value the other believers in the assembly? Do you spend as much time praying for the overseers as criticizing them? Do you spend as much time praying for older saints as for younger ones? Do you spend as much time praying for those who are not your inner circle as those who are your inner circle? Paul had a genuine care for the believers, a tremendous warmth. He calls God to witness to his prayer. He's able to, to call God as witness, how greatly I long after you all. We have his, the measure of his burden. It was a burden to him. We have the magnitude of it. He's praying for all in the assembly. And we have something of the motivation. The tender mercies of Jesus Christ. The, the love that Christ had for his people being reproduced in Paul's prayer life, in his concern for them. He says several times, for you all, for you all. So, our brother has just mentioned that uh, there can be ministry in a company like this that is primarily for young believers, some for older believers. Let me just for a moment address younger believers. 
When you came into Assembly Fellowship, you assumed a tremendous responsibility. Whether you are a young teenager, whether you're in your 20s, whatever the case, when you came into Assembly Fellowship, you assumed a tremendous responsibility. That responsibility is that you are now partly responsible for the welfare of every believer that makes up the fellowship of the assembly which you form a part. You may say, well, what can, I'm just a young believer. How can I help someone who's been saved for 50 years? How can I help leaders who know so much more of the Word of God than I do? Do you ever think of praying for everyone in the assembly? Every individual? Every family? Every marriage? Every family raising children, the leaders in the assembly. You might say, well, our assembly is very big. we uh, be very, very difficult to do that in the time. I... Well, do it in stages. If you've got to chop the assembly up, that's one way you can do it that's legitimate. Chop it up and pray for half today, half tomorrow. But be big enough to bring in all the people of God in your assembly. Not just friends. Not just those you know that have a special need and burden. Paul had a big heart, and he prayed for all the believers, and he could call God to witness to it. We see something of the wealth of his prayer as well. He speaks of their love abounding. He speaks of discernment. So love that was wise and discernment that's weighty. And he comes down the chapter and speaks of a testimony that was winsome. And he speaks as well of a life that's wealthy and motives that are worthy. All of that could be looked at. But let me just come to what I want to speak on, and that is we've heard of the wisdom of God in the building blocks of assembly life. I want to talk about the wisdom of Paul in his prayer life. The wisdom of Paul in his prayer life. Let me just give it to you in a couple of contrasts, if I can. Not the material, but the spiritual. Now, I don't want you to become critical, because if you are, you'll find I'm at fault. Analyze how much of our prayer life is for the spiritual welfare of the people of God versus the need of a job, somebody's sick, somebody has financial need. Now, those are all very necessary, legitimate things to bear before God in prayer. All I want to emphasize is this, that when Paul bowed his knees and prayed, what was ultimately before him was not health and wealth, but spiritual well-being of the people of God. And he realized, he was wise enough to realize that issues of health, issues of trial in life, could all lead to spiritual wealth for the people of God. And so as he's praying, he is praying for their, their spiritual welfare, that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and in all discernment, to be able to approve, put a right value on things that really matter, to be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Not a word about the trials they were going through. Not a word about the society in which they lived and the possible persecution and difficulties. A man concerned with the spiritual welfare of the people of God. Praying for their fruitfulness, praying for their faithfulness, praying for their furtherance. Praying for moral character to be developed in the people of God for whom he prayed. So, not material, but spiritual. But then again, he says, uh, 
Not blind, but bountiful. Not blind, but bountiful. He speaks there, doesn't he? That your love may abound yet more and more in all knowledge and in all discernment. There is a particular bumper sticker that I see occasionally on cars that uh, sometimes, I I know it's not very wise, sometimes almost makes me want to uh, pull up next to them, roll the window down, and say, I want to correct what you've got on your bumper sticker, okay? Uh, The bumper sticker that really bothers me is, uh, hatred is not a family value. Now, that may sound nice on the surface, but a family that does not teach their children what to hate cannot teach them what to love. Thou hast loved righteousness, hated iniquity. Hatred is a family value. Don't get... Don't get snowed under by our multicultural tolerant society that accepts everything, that somehow because all men are equal, all ideas are equal, and all behavior is equal. Men can be equal. That doesn't mean ideas and behavior are all equal. There are things that God condemns and hates. And we are are taught here that love will abound, grow in knowledge and in all discernment. And, of course, often mentioned like two banks of a river containing to two banks containing the, the mighty flow of a river. So that love is to be controlled by knowledge and by discernment of appreciating. What does God love? What can I do to be a help to believers? The idea of love is not uh, an emotion, not a feel-good feeling. Not that we leave every meeting with a feel-good feeling and uh, we've had a real up occasion and everybody feels really good about themselves and uh, our self-esteem has increased two notches on the uh, psychological rating scale. No. Genuine love is the hardest thing to express because love is always doing what is best for another. And that is not always an easy thing to do. We frequently opt out take the easy way out. We have excuses for it. We say we don't want to offend. We don't want, but truth is, the most difficult thing to do is to love in a scriptural, spiritual way. Because it always means sacrificing self to do what is best for another. And so Paul reminds us here that not blind, but but to be bountiful. A life abounding. Grace, guidance, Growth, all of that involved here, in order that you may be able to put a right value on things. So let me come then to what I already mentioned, not settling for the good, but the best. You know what your life is going to mean in the end? You know what is going to determine the value of your life? When the divine mathematician strikes the line and sums it all up together, its value is going to be the direct result of choices, choices you have made in life. Some of them will seem very, very normal. Some of them won't seem like they're major decisions you're making at the crossroads of life. Some will seem like just normal, everyday things we have to decide But in reality, every choice is going to exert a tremendous influence on the destiny of your life. Whether the choice about a pathway, 
Whether the choice about a place to live, fellowship, whether the choice about preparation for a career, whether the choice about a partner in life, every choice, every choice is going to somehow influence your life for better or for worse. God has not left us with some kind of maze in which to walk through. In this time of the year, you all see the corn mazes that, uh, that they have in the fields, and somehow you've got to find your way through, and if you do, you get a prize. Well, God has not put you in a maze with a prize at the end if you happen to make it through. We've been hearing already this morning, and likewise this afternoon, we have a wonderful book in our hands. And this book will give us clear, unmistakable guidance for at least 99% of, our, of your life and mine. You may say, what about the other 1%? Well, it's not going to tell you to marry Jane or marry Mary or marry Deborah. It's going to give you principles. It's going to give you principles to guide you in your life as you are navigating the choices that you face. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, and 9. In those central chapters of that book our brother has been reminding us of, Paul will give principles to guide in areas that you might say there's a certain amount of liberty. Marriage, celibacy, remarriage, and so forth. Principle of chapter 7 is, will this hinder my living for God? So that's principle number one to apply to your choice. Will this hinder my living for God? Chapter 8, will it hinder another believer? Paul says, as far as eating meat, if it's going to hinder my brother, I will not eat meat while the world stands. Chapter 9, when it came to his unique situation of taking support. It's not now will it hinder my living for God. Not now will it hinder my brother, but Paul says, lest I hinder the gospel. So three guiding principles in all those areas where God has given liberty. Chapter 7, marriage. Will it hinder my living for God? Chapter 8, meets. Will it hinder my brother? Chapter 9, money. Will it hinder the gospel? And as I apply those principles to the choices of life, there is every likelihood I will be moving and keeping with, with God's will for my life. But Paul here reminds them that facing the choices of life, there are things that are good. And you can settle for that. But he says, I want you to do, I want you to know what is actually the best, the best for your life. That she may approve things that are more excellent. Now, if we had time and I had the ability, we could go through this epistle and notice in every chapter, he speaks of something that is better. Chapter 2, it's esteeming others better. Chapter 3, the excellency of the knowledge, the exceeding betterness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And... In chapter 4, as well, he speaks of the peace of God, which is better than understanding. Things to go in for that excel. Things that really matter. Things that really are worth living for. Going in for the very best of life. Let me just take one thing that our brother has dealt with already. And that is a sphere of usefulness that God has given. Whether you want to call it a gift or a sphere of usefulness. How would you feel at the end of life? You came to the end. And you look back. 
and you had to look back with regret. That what God put in my hand to do, that service that I thought so insignificant when I first began, and I didn't really give myself to it, what would it be like? Oh, you were at all the meetings, you attended meetings, and you took part in the meetings, and you took your turn at uh, preaching the gospel, or you took your turn in uh, whatever, but you realize, I didn't give it my best. I didn't really do all that I could have done for God. Now, I'm not trying to make us slaves to a, a sense of guilt. This is not a manipulation meeting, not even an inspirational meeting in terms of business standards, but what would it be like to look back from eternity and to think that I could have done that for God. That little service he put in my hands, I could have done it. Now you all know, and you're all very, very much aware, that God will not reward gift. God does not reward gift. He's given that. God rewards faithfulness for what he's given. So you may think that that teaching of a Sunday school class is a very, very minor role to play. You may think that giving yourself to studying the Bible so you can be a help in a Bible reading is a... Well, it's not very glamorous. My name never gets in the magazine and uh, very few people come and pat me on the back. Listen, if you do faithfully what God has put into your hands, would I be wrong in saying that the potential reward and honor you receive at the judgment seat... If you have done faithfully what God has given you to do, and the more gifted public individual has done faithfully what God has given him to do, or her to do, God will reward both in keeping with his character and in keeping with the faithfulness you have displayed in your service for him. There is a danger, a tremendous danger, all of us, especially Western society, I think, and... All of us face it, of just settling down, just becoming comfortable with our lifestyles, and our religion begins to just fit into our middle-class life. I think it was our brother Gilliland that I first heard say that uh, the goal of preachers is to comfort the troubled and to trouble those who are comfortable. And uh, we all get very comfortable in our middle-class Christianity. And forget there are places in the world where, for example, our brother Howland has reminded us where believers live in a totally different environment, totally different situation. And we just feel that this is the standard of Christian living. Paul says, don't get too comfortable. I don't know how you view what Jacob said to Issachar back in the Old Testament. He, he saw the land was good, and he just crouched down. He, he just was wasn't going to be too, too burdened about, about claiming his inheritance. Possible to get very caught up in our comfortable lifestyles. Paul says, don't just settle for what's good. I want you to go in for what is the very, very best. But then he says as well, he says, I want you to realize that Christianity is not about the absence of things. It's about the abundance of things. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled, filled with the fruits of righteousness. 
We can begin thinking that Christianity means I don't do this, I don't go there, I don't get involved in this, I stay away from that, and it's what I don't do that really establishes spiritual life. No, Paul says that's not it at all. He says what really it's all about is the abundance of moral virtues and beauties. He himself displays that in this very chapter. We didn't read it. Let me just quote it to you. Paul is imprisoned. He has chains. He has confinement. He has critics. He has competitors. And Paul was being set up. You know what I mean? Being set up by Satan for a tremendous risk of becoming bitter. He says... This shall turn to my salvation through your prayers and the further supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks of his salvation in Philippians chapter 1, it has nothing to do with getting out of prison. It has everything to do with Paul displaying Christ-like character in prison. That's why he says it shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Three times in our New Testament, I think, that expression, the Spirit of of Jesus Christ, or the Spirit of Christ is used. Romans chapter 8, it links us with Christ. If any man have not the Spirit, he is not of his. It links me with Christ. Peter writes of it in 1 Peter chapter 1, about the Old Testament prophets, that as they wrote uh, what the Spirit of God gave them to write, that they inquired and searched diligently what in what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So it not only links me with Christ, but the Spirit of Christ helps me learn about Christ. What about here? The Spirit of God making me like Christ. Paul says this is what life is all about. This is what makes life worth living. This is really the fruit that God is looking for in every believer's life. Being filled with the fruits of of righteousness, so that your Christianity is not about what you don't do. It's about what you do do. And because of who Christ is, and because of what you enjoy, and because of what you're displaying, other things just fall by the way. No need for rules and regulations. No need for fiats from the overseers. No need for mandates as to what you're allowed to do and not to do. But as you are filled with the fruits of righteousness... Not the absence, but the abundance. But then he says, what I'm talking about is not just for time. It's for all eternity. He speaks of that here. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Not just now. But that character you are molding, that life you are living, that fruit you are displaying, that service you are rendering... He says it has an eternal value, an eternal consequence, going far beyond time into eternity. And he says as well, it's not about you, but it's about him. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Lovely that in chapter 2, when we read of his exaltation, God will make every knee bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord, but to the glory of God the Father. He will never cease as a servant bringing glory to his Father. And you and I now have the privilege 
now and for all eternity. Do you ever pity? Do you ever pity the MVP winner of the Super Bowl? Do you ever pity those that uh, walk off the hockey rink with the uh, Stanley Cup in their arms? Pity them. What they do, I was going to say, will be forgotten in eternity. It's forgotten a year or two later. I mean, you've got to really be a, a fairly close fan of a particular sport to remember who won something five years ago and who got the award ten years ago. I mean, there are those that uh, somehow their minds are obsessed with that that can do it, but the average person, I mean, all that glory fades. All that glory is so meaningless. And all their life just crumples into ashes. You realize that what you can do for God will go on forever. Ever. And ever. Our brother has been reminding us of the wisdom of God in, in his building. The wisdom of God in what he has allowed us to build into his testimony. He didn't deal with that in chapter 3, but you know it so well. Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. The day shall declare it. Every man's work being tried, what sort it is, and so on. And in the coming day, chapter 4, then shall every man have praise of God. Now, come on. Just think of it as a reality. That you can do something in this life. You can so live in this life. You can so make choices in this life for what is really better. That you will actually leave the judgment seat of Christ with the praise of God ringing in your ears forever. Choosing things that really matter. Go in for the best. Don't settle for the good. May God help us to honor him with our lives.